Welcome to Mastering Data, where we sit down with inspirational leaders in data and IT to hear their interesting career journeys and lessons learned. Each episode is packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. So, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, join us and get ready to take your data skills to the next level. Welcome to Master and Data, where we sit down with leaders in the data industry to learn about their success and tips and tricks. And today we have a special guest, it's Peter Hartman. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. And Peter went from being a flight dispatch attendant to soaring to new heights as the analytics manager at Westpac. I mean, talk about an 180-degree turn, Peter. You Absolutely, know? yeah. But seriously, Peter's got a fascinating story to share, and we can't wait to hear all about it. So buckle up, grab a snack, <laughs> and get ready for takeoff as we get into this with Peter. And I'll try and keep the flight analogies to a minimum. <laughs> I mentioned it there in the beginning, Peter, right? And buried at the bottom of your experience in your career history is that you started as a flight dispatcher Yes. So you're one of these guys with the lollipops? <laughs> no, no, it's 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 a it's a little a little more back office than that. So what we did as a flight dispatch officer is essentially we had to create the flight path that aircraft have to fly on. All right. So, so this is specifically for the so data was involved still. A lot of data was involved. <laughs> so everything from um, understanding what's happening in the airspaces, you know, the actual air structure, the airways, they're kind of like roads in the sky, to air, all the way down to you know what sort of military um, exercise might be happening, things we have to oh, avoid, wow. all the weather that's going on. So that, that was sort of twofold. It was whether about the airports themselves, you know, are there thunderstorms? Is there fog? Will the aircraft be able to see the runway? Do they need to carry enough fuel to get right to the top of descent and then have to go to a completely different airport? Or do they just need enough fuel to just hold for an hour because it might be a thunderstorm still as they get there, right? Got it, okay. So it's quite technical, more technical than I thought. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was, it, was a, it was a technical role, but it was also very heavily regulated. You mm. know, the um, flight dispatches are regulated by, you know, in, in the US is by the FAA and, you know, we have the Civil Aviation Authority here in Australia. Yeah. So, no, it was, it was a very technical job. Very fun, though. I guess the, the, some of the biggest challenges around it was when you come in, you know, you're on for nine and a half hours, 10 hours. You just got to be on. You're creating so flight plans. You yeah. You're talking to pilots. You're talking to air traffic control. You know, you're talking to the rest of the operations team. Flight dispatch was just one component of getting an aircraft away. You know, we, had, we you talked to everyone from like the load controllers, the ops controllers, you know, the, the refuelers, even baggage handlers. You know, we have to consider how long it takes to turn around an aircraft. Yeah. Our food needs to be put on. Bags need to be pulled off. You know, sometimes the toilets need to be <laughs> cleaned wow, there's out. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. I, I feel mean, exhausted that, just thinking about it. Yeah, but it, it, it's a very exciting job, very fun job. But yeah. yes, it definitely started my journey, my love of data and how it's utilized to essentially make a decision. Yeah, well, great. And that's exactly kind of where I wanted to start in terms of that career history and experience. And I guess one of the striking things for me, Peter, is that that's even though that's buried at the bottom of your experience and your CV, you wrote well out the way and you've got to kind of root around to find it. That was with Qantas, right? Correct, yes. And then you didn't necessarily move to a different company to become working with data analytics. You actually made the steps through Qantas from that role into a, like an analytics leader role. So it'd be great just to hear in your own words, what led you to where you are today? Like, how did you follow that path at, at a high level through those steps in the, on the career trajectory? And kind of what set you off on that path initially as well? I guess the if I was going to give you the very short answer, what set me off on the path was really getting the sense that if you ever wanted to become a, a shot caller or someone who, you know, wanted to use their insights or their commercial acumen to make a decision, you kind of needed two things. Uh, first of all, you needed the 
and by the way, this was not something I worked out on my own as a, <laughs> as a young 20 something year old. I, I was, I was blessed enough to get this really good career advice. Yeah, from, good. Um, yeah, we'll definitely touch upon that. Yeah, so well, we well. can come back to that one later. But essentially, you need to understand how a business works holistically. Operations is very important at Qantas. You know, airline need to, uh, you know, aircraft need to fly. They need to be safe. They need to be legal. They need to be compliant. They need to be comfortable for the customer. But that's just one cog in a massive machine, you know, called an, called an airline from everything from the finance department, revenue management, pricing, the fuel department, sales in, and those relationships they generate. We have also the Qantas Luno loyalty program, which is probably one of Qantas's most valuable non-aircraft assets, right? I mean, it's kind of jokingly, this is not from internal from Qantas, but just you know, you hear it just generally around Australians consider Qantas frequent flyer points as the second most valuable currency in Australia behind the Australian wow, dollar. really? Right? Because it's so people, okay. people will go out of their way to perhaps shop at a Woolworths because they know they can get mm. Qantas points there as opposed to a different um, shopping centre. Yeah. You know, yeah. they might get a specific credit card because of those points. They might get a specific um, financial product. So, you know, there's anyway. So the, the point is, if you want to be a shopper, you can't just know one little aspect of, of a company. You have to understand. And all the component right? pieces, right? And I guess, you know, from your background there, where you mentioned you have to deal with all the operations, loads of different people you have to speak to on a daily exactly. basis, yeah. that give you that really good oversight of what was happening, how that business ticked, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. There's kind of a, a second component to that is that if you want to get into the data world, you have to also appreciate that operational people have been doing it, you know, for a hundred years and business people are, you know, great at sales and strategy and revenue management pricing. They're not necessarily technically savvy with data, mm. right? So that's the other consideration is that, can you be that conduit? Can you be the person that can construct a narrative, can um, lay out, you know, bring data up to a high level, to an inside level, to a story yeah. that you can share, that you can influence decisions by those other aspects of yeah. the company, yeah. And do you think that your unique background, working in that flight dispatch role previously, brought a different perspective to the table to the guys that had been there before and didn't necessarily have that kind of breadth of view of, of the organization? I I think it certainly gave me a unique perspective about uh, having a strong understanding of the operational, give me, I guess, in short, operational acumen of an airline. Mm. But I really needed the commercial acumen. There's two types, operational, commercial, you know, bring those together and having that technical knowledge, which kind of touches upon my career journey sure. and the career advice I received to be able to get those three things so that I can be more effective in being a commercial insights leader in where I am today. Great. And and I guess we'll, we'll definitely touch on that career advice and mentorship as well sure. a little bit later because I want to pick up on that in a bit more detail. But one question I have there, not coming from a technical role into a quite a technical role, yeah. hands-on with the tools, Yeah. what approach did you take to that? Like, how did you learn about the tools and technology? If there's somebody out there listening to this now, yeah. who's doing a similar role, like on the shop floor, for example, operational, has that oversight and thinking, oh, I can see the data, I've got a passion for it, I want to get into it. Yeah. What would your advice be and what did you do to, to get into the tools and get, get that understanding? I started to, very early on in my career, started to put my hands up for small opportunities that either I created or identified. So when I, I did have a passion for aviation, that's why I did an oh, aviation right. degree. And, and that's, um, how I came across. That's, that's how I originally got into my career. But as I got more into the, the flight dispatch game and I had got a couple of years of experience under my, my belt, you know, I put my hand up to be like a dueling buddy for new starters, get involved in the training. And then at one point there was an opportunity to sort of turn around the whole flight planning system. You know, there's a whole underlying, very complicated system that has to take in all this information and spit out an optimized flight plan. 
I put my hand up for that going, well, look, this is this will give me more exposure to the data. This will give me more opportunities to not just use the tools, but start playing with data. So things like you can start off very basically, you know, get some information, put into something like Microsoft Excel or mm. Power BI or any yeah. of those um, tools that are out there, you know, um, as we get more advanced, you know, there's things like Snowflake, which I know you know a lot <laughs> yeah. about, but, yeah. um, but, you know, when you're starting off, um, see if you can do something interesting with data, give yourself an insight or, yeah. or just pick up your own, you know, we've all got one of these in our lives and export your calendar and see if you can going, hey, look, I've noticed I always have meetings, you know, in the morning and I've got free afternoons. Can I optimize my own schedule to have a play? If you're curious and like you said, you have a passion for it, yeah. there are boundless opportunities for free, really, just to start practicing getting sure. that data. Sure, and that's, but I think that's the unique thing about you because you mentioned there that you weren't sort of scared of putting your hand up, no. trying out new things, getting hands-on with the data and experiment. And that's not for everybody, right? And I guess True. it would only be a matter of time then before you had the opportunity to move into yep. a different world because of your mindset, right? And because you were willing to kind of put yourself out there and, and just try new things and learn new things. So I think yep. that for me is probably what stands out in terms of the difference. If you didn't do that, you could still yeah. be there now, <laughs> you know? So so I think it probably takes initiative, I would say, in that, that self-motivation to get out there and do that. Do you see those traits in yourself and have you seen those kind of continue on your career journey so far? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I've been blessed enough to have a natural, healthy dose of curiosity. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm always like understanding and constantly learning. You know, I don't want to sort of rest on my laurels for too long. That's, that might be perhaps a natural strength. I listen to many podcasts as yeah. well. And what's, from, your, what's your favorite one? Uh, actually, like a, a podcast by a gentleman called Lex Fridman, and he interviews a lot of uh, leaders in the technical world, not necessarily data, but, you know, they might be working on AI projects or drones or, you know, with the military. And usually these leaders, you know, always very inspirational. Every podcast, he always asks, if you have some advice for, for some young people, you know, going through high school, listening to this, how do they become you? Inevitably, they almost always say, do something you love, do, do something that you're passionate about, that you're curious about. And if that happens to be data and in that space, then do whatever you need to do, do a job, do your degree, whatever you need to, but then do the thing you love, get into it. And the opportunities will come to you, I, I believe. I agree. You know, and yeah. I think if you've got that passion and yep. that, that self-motivation and that drive to succeed, no matter what industry or career you're in, yeah. you'll always find a way, right? And, that, and that's obvious looking at the trajectory of your career <laughs> history from where you began and where you started out to kind of where you are today, right? You know, when you look back on that kind of experience and history you've had, not just within Qantas, but your whole kind of experience so far, is the kind of one area where you could pinpoint to say that that changed the trajectory or that changed my uh, mindset and approach? Absolutely. I mean, I think it might align with it future question you, you may want to ask in this podcast, it. but it's the uh, it's, it's, it's essentially the biggest career risk I think I've ever taken. Okay. So again, as you said, I was in flight dispatch and then I joined this project to revolutionize this whole flight planning system. It was, you know, world-class. I remember during the project, we had uh, competing airlines like Emirates uh, knocking at the door going, hey, we want to get in on this. This is amazing what you guys are doing. And as I got to it, I realized, oh, well, actually, I've got a taste for this. I love this. Um, having that sense of ownership of something, that responsibility, I want to drive something. There's probably, I've kind of hit a glass ceiling <laughs> in the operational world because I'm not technically an engineer or a pilot. So, you know, there's only so far you can go. Only so far I can go. And yeah, so I was kind of considering what I, what I need to do. And, um, we'll come back to the career advice as you question later. But the biggest career risk I ever took was, Hey, I'm doing pretty well in operations, but I think I need to start getting some commercial acumen. 
So I resigned. I mean, I didn't resign without having a job first. I mm-hmm. started applying for jobs internally to Qantas. Okay. And I got a role in the revenue management world. Completely different, different buildings, yeah. different teams, okay. barely any crossover with the operations. So what attracted you to apply for that, that role? Well, I decided I wanted to develop my career in, so com- in commercial, commercial. Co- commercial acumen and I needed something that they'd give me a, someone would give me a chance in. I had to prove um, how I was able to, you know, use data and use analysis um, to understand pricing, understand the context mm. of the greater scope. And it is very hard to sometimes translate operational skills to commercial skills. So then I applied for a very, very junior role. So I went from quite well developed in the operational world, let's say, to right back to the bottom oh, where, okay. you know, like a, yeah. a, a I think the other person I was working with was just like a debt program person and mm. um, like essentially like a, an intern. So it was back wow. back to that level. So and, that was, talk, and how old were you at that point roughly? Um, look, I think I was in my late 20s. I've already, okay. I already had about six or seven years in Qantas under my belt and yeah. I went back to pretty much- and We're not talking about a sideways move here. We're, we're talking about quite a, a distinct move sort of some would consider backwards. Yeah, so sideways and and down, yeah. but to to, <laughs> yeah. to to get a to to build it back up. But then I was very passionate, very focused on um, getting that experience. And again, I'm just jumping at the opportunities to learn. Yeah, I think uh, people do appreciate a positive work attitude in addition to that willingness to learn and listen, especially when you're in a junior role. Yeah, and I, I took I took every chance I, I could in that role. And then I eventually worked my way up the ranks there, and I finally became uh, a. It's a root performance specialist where you know you could really optimize both the inventory and the pricing side of it. I, w- I wasn't either an inventory or a pricing analyst, but I could generate the data and the insights around those to guide both the, our inventory analysts in revenue management as well as our pricing analysts, and really to send that data to for you as useful information for them to adjust the levers they have Got at their disposal. Okay, and that's really when I'm like, yeah. okay. This is when I, I've discovered I can make an impact through data. And you kind of took that step back, right? But obviously it saved you well longer term. And then you got to the point where I guess you decided you'd reached a certain point at Qantas and, you know, there for quite a long time. Roughly how long was that? Uh, about 12 years. And then you made the decision to, to kind of move on from there, right? Yes. So, and that's when you went to Guzman then at that point? I did, yeah. Guzmani Gomez or GYG as yeah, um, yeah. most people cool know kids it. call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So, so the driver to move from there then was again because you kind of reached a, reached a ceiling, did you th- feel? And you needed that change to kind of yeah. keep that kind of curiosity drive going and, and, and learn some new stuff? That was certainly a part of it. It was, it was also an opportunity to learn a different industry. And it was an opportunity I felt when I saw the role to join at the time, GYG was still sort of at the tail end of being a, a startup, early okay. days of being becoming a proper corporation. So they're kind of at that transition phase. I really felt like I had the opportunity to make the role my own. And for the first time, I had direct exposure to the CEO, CFO, COO, the chief marketing officer, and I reported directly to the CTO. Okay. So it was so a, quite a step change. It was quite a step change. Yeah, was, what was your role, Peter, just here? What was your official I, kind of title or what were you looking after? I think I really got a change after about six months with them. <laughs> but when it first started, it was some really like funny sounding role, like Power BI visualization expert, oh, some, right. something, okay. really, <laughs> something really weird yeah, like yeah. that. But then very, very quickly after that, it was essentially the commercial insights manager for yeah. all of the GYG. And they covered everything from operations, finance, a lot to do with marketing and sales. But um, uh, there's also a lot of um, operational efficiency stuff that um, we looked at as well. So it was 
great exposure. It gave me an opportunity to often nerve-wrackingly <laughs> present to the CEO and have my ideas shut down publicly, but <laughs> it was a very yeah. valuable lesson. You've got to go through that. I <laughs> yeah, think you, yeah. you've all got to do that right of fashion at, at some exactly. stage. Exactly. You know? It was one of those sort of scary, scary moments in my career that I, I'll never forget. <laughs> but at, at the same time, it taught me a lot. And it just reinforced my passion for, you know, this is a career in which you can make a difference, especially to those that don't have either the time because they're so busy operationally or don't have the t technical skills to translate data into meaningful insights. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then I just want to kind of bring the listeners up to date in terms of where you are now, because you've recently <laughs> transitioned again from, from Guzman. So you had Guzman for a few years. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah. And how long were you there roughly? Uh, just over two years. Okay. Yeah. And then... I guess late last year, you, you yeah. moved to Westpac yes, into uh, a quite a senior role. Yes, yes. So now I'm at the Westpac Group, which is the parent company of the Westpac Bank Corporation, St. George Bank, Rams Home Loans, Bank of Melbourne, okay. Bank South, South Australia. So they're the, the parent company that oversees sure. all those financial corporations. So I'm the uh, senior manager of analytics and insights in um, yeah, the commercial and business banking division of the parent group. Okay. What does that entail at a high level? <laughs> for you? We, we might get into like the day in the life of Peter yeah, later, but, yeah. but you know, what, what's your remit in terms of that? Have you kind of yeah, look. Have you worked that out, or is it kind of? Still I'm still look. I'm I'm certainly still learning a lot. I mean, joining a bank with you know a 200 year history. There's a there's a lot. Yeah. To, there's a really there's a lot to learn. I'm quite quite different from where Guzman was. Very what, different, you know? and again, yeah. very different from Qantas. So again, <laughs> a, a new a new industry, a new opportunity yeah. to learn. Well, I guess essentially the the remit is Westpac have different challenges, which I'll come back to in a second. But you really being the authority on the correctness of the data, the standardization, the reporting, and enabling our bankers who have a pipeline line of opportunity, yeah. you know, to get home loans, credit yeah, cards sure. through the customers, yeah. being the, the authority on the correctness of that, holding them accountable to that, you know, through letting them see what opportunities there are. And then obviously presenting that up to our senior leaders who can then use those insights to make um, you know, resourcing decisions, uh, strategy decisions and that kind of thing. Got yeah. it. Okay. So yeah. still quite heavily operationally focused though. So, you know, that seems to be a common theme for all of your roles that you've had. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yep. It is. It is. Uh, there's certainly a big operational aspect to it. Good. Well, I wanted to move on to just around talent acquisition and in, in, in your role now at Westpac. Are you involved directly in terms of looking to recruit people and bring people into your team? Not at the moment. I think uh, just because I'm, I think I'm only in about okay. a, month, a month in. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I guess it's coming. But I, I, yeah, when I mean, look, I, I have been in, in Qantas and I have been at GYG, and yeah. I think I think it will be coming in time. So, yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, I, and I guess just the the market as it is certainly here in Australia and no doubt the rest of the world as well. Talent and the shortage around talent at the moment. Well, certainly quite recently has been a big pain point for a lot of organizations to get your hands on the right skills. Yes. And uh, I guess it'd be really good to understand if, you know, you've employed a strategy in the past or done anything differently to, you know, attract talent or find where those people may be yep. and bring those on. So it'd be great to hear, like, if you've got any tips or tricks for people well, who are stuck. Or well, I actually have a really good story to share with you about okay, this. Great. So um, <laughs> at GYG, I nominated my CTO, who I reported to, for the CIO 50 Awards. It's once a year. It's the yep. top top 50 CIOs or slash CTOs in, in the country. Now, he came 26th. You can look him up. He's on the website, Steve Orlio. I believe you. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and... Um, when we were there, the top 50 CTOs of Australia, so you know, it's quite an authoritative body of uh, people, listed sort of the top 10 or they discussed the top 10 skills that they were looking for 
in their tech leaders and their tech teams. And what really surprised me was that I don't think I heard a single technical skill until about number seven or eight on the list, right? So the first six skills, and this is in order of importance, Mm. by the way, uh, were all generally soft skills, you know, things like uh, creativity, you know, uh, being able to be dependable and accountable for what you say, communication, teamwork. Critical um, thinking. Yeah, cri- okay. critical, th- exactly. Yeah. Crit- I have my notes here. So I was about to <laughs> li- listen more. Oh, yeah. Okay. But it was, it was indeed, yeah. Yeah. it wasn't your critical thinking. Yeah. And these skills, very much like me very early on in my career, don't necessarily uh, have to be a someone who's done computer science and a, you know, data analytics course. I mean, they're very valuable. And yeah, absolutely, sure. like very valuable skills. So don't, I'm not trying to diminish those at all. But there's only so but many of those people. There's only right? so many of those people. Well, considering, you know, where do, where do we get these skills from? And, you know, my, and I hope I don't come across uh, as inappropriate here, but my old, uh, my old CTO used to say that, you know, if you want something done efficiently and cost effectively, give it to a single mum who has no time because like they know how to do things efficiently, right? As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible, <laughs> efficiently, you yeah. know, well considered yeah. and yeah. Um, they're generally producing a, a great output. So, you know, we need to start looking at the rest of the workforce that sometimes tech leaders may have not considered in the past. Parents who have children in school can only work part-time and they have to work nine to three, you know, give them that flexibility to work. And then when they work for you, you give them that opportunity to flex their creativity, their organization, their soft skills, their critical thinking, which they they generally have, and teach them the data skills. You not only be able to find more people for the organization to work for you, but you also generate quite a sense, strong sense of loyalty because you will uniquely be giving people opportunities that other companies may not be. Mm. And I that weren't, weren't open to those people beforehand, right? Correct. So yes. I think that's great. I mean, just thinking about those kind of soft skills and, and kind of what I've learned over the years in terms of interviewing people and looking for talent, it's like it's far easier to teach somebody how to use a particular tool exactly. than it is to to learn certain values and apply certain mindset to things, which is far, far Absolutely more challenging, true. right? Yeah. So I definitely, like that definitely resonates with me. And I guess with that understanding and, and that kind of discussion that you were having, that husband, did you actually deploy any of those strategies in the market and how fruitful was that? Yeah, look, look definitely. I mean, the I was hiring for a, a junior analyst role to join my team to report to me. And I think we had something like 300 applicants. It was, so we were, perhaps we were very lucky, but the person I ended up hiring was um, someone who's a relatively recent uh, immigrant to Australia. So the English wasn't necessarily the best, but the attitude that they presented in the job interview and then the follow-up job interviews after that was just amazing. They were well-spoken. They were really willing to listen. They'd proven how they also went through a career journey themselves from, I think that he was a, a cook in a restaurant, oh, right, okay. you know, and, he's, and he decided that, no, he wants to learn and he demonstrated that journey, his his results, how he went out and sought work on his own to volunteer to, for companies. I think he w- walked down his street, found a hairdresser and said, hey, let me, I've got these data skills. Let me show you what I can do to help you with your business. And he did it and he showed me and I was so impressed. And you know, this is not someone who doesn't have a, any sort of form of degree, mm-hmm. right? Self-taught after the fact he's from Colombia. I knew straight away that that is not an attitude that I could teach or find anywhere yeah, else. Absolutely. That natural curiosity. Yeah. And this guy is a superstar. 
he's in working for GYG now. And um, it's just amazing how being more open to more options in, in the job interview has really found someone that works really well. That's great. And I, and, I, and I think those values, you know, as you, as you see, can take people a long way. Yeah. And it comes, I guess, back to that question of education in terms of the, the value education can play now. Because yeah. maybe it's when me, when I was starting my career, you were yes. back in the day when you were starting your career, there's kind of one route. It was, you know, you, you go to uni, you get a degree, you optionally do a master's, but there's that route where you saw a lot of job adverts at the time saying you need an undergraduate degree in stats or maths or yeah. whatever it is to get into a data science field. Now, you know, with the, the internet and, yeah. and the availability of learning and courses, and if you have that mindset, that curious mindset that you just described, um, that guy had, and certainly that you've shown in the past, you can go on there now and you can be anywhere in the world and a lot of the courses are free, as you know, right? Yeah, you don't, absolutely. Don't need to pay you think websites like Udemy have all that. Uh, that's a lot of courses for a year. And and you can YouTube. Yeah, and if you've got that self motivation, you can kind of upskill yourself and try to break into that that kind of field. So it does absolutely. make me question in today's age. You know, does that devalue that traditional process? You know, with it being more roots in, do companies now need to change their stance in terms of what they're looking at. Is having an undergraduate degree now a prerequisite to having a job anymore? Or is that a bit outdated? You know, what, what's your kind of view on that, Peter? And what's yeah. been your experience of, you know, you mentioned there's some guy that's self-taught. Yeah. You've obviously worked with a lot of people, no doubt, that have had degrees yeah, and masters and, and that kind of thing in the past. Yeah, yeah. So what is your view in terms of today and kind of going forward, certainly in your new role at Westpac, recruitment strategy and what, what would you be looking for? Like, what would be those top three skills, for example, that you would look for, for from a person? Well, I mean, number one skill for me is always, uh, always has been curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just generally curiosity, especially because I've always been, in the, in the whole sort of scope of the data world, I've always been attracted to insights. So then if you want to work in the insights aspect of that, you always need to be naturally curious. But I mean, to answer your question about our traditional university degrees and TAFE diplomas, are they as valuable as they once were? It's hard to make a clear judgment call. I think that someone who had the privilege and opportunity to go into university and has completed it has demonstrated a valuable skill set that they are able to learn and apply knowledge because those people who have done a university degree do understand that it's not like school. Once you go to university, there's no teacher holding your hand. It's really up to you to, um, to And some people fall by the wayside, right? When they, they, they do, when absolutely. Out, you know? So having been able to demonstrate that as a young age, especially when you know, you're 21 years old trying to apply for a job and you don't have job experience, it's a good demonstration of your ability to- Aptitude. To, aptitude yeah. to, you know, to apply that. Having said that though, people who are self-taught with these, these new modern ways of learning, you know, open universities or, or online learning, YouTube even, it's a bit hard to put, I watch these YouTube videos and a resume, isn't it? Still, but um, <laughs> like one day, Mike. Yeah, maybe, know. maybe. But I think those get became more and more valuable, and recruiters should be very much open to not just looking at people with university degrees. They should then definitely need to look at these people with great attitudes who are self-taught, who are very passionate. It's still early days, so you know, giving those people opportunities not only uh, opens up a whole new candidate pool for you as a company, but can also generate quite a strong sense of loyalty from those people back. To your team so someone as you know uh, investing in training someone is a very expensive very costly exercise so you, you you don't want them to join your company and leave after three months so again there's that opportunity to to you know have a longer term like the a, more stable like a reciprocal team. kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. you know i guess yeah. if you invest in somebody then hopefully that that culture then and they feel more involved exactly. and empowered and invested yeah. in they give just as much back if that's not, right. if not more it brings me to the point about mentorship yeah 
and um, some of the stuff we touched on a bit earlier. I understand as well that you've done lectures to kind of students around yes. this, or, or yeah, kind of yeah, talks yeah. to students. Yes. So, what might be considered complementary to kind of that traditional education path? And um, I would love to hear your kind of stories around that mentorship and about the best pieces of advice and what that piece of advice was. Oh, sure, sure. Um, and then, and then maybe just get into the chat around you know the students and those conversations that you're having and kind of what your takeaways are from where the students are today are in kind of what advice you, you've been given to them as well. I guess I'll start to touch upon my the best career advice I ever got, which. I kind of have uh, covered off already by saying, you know, I took that big career risk from going from operations to the commercial groups analysts, kind of quite a low level position. So was that the catalyst behind that then? Some the, of the, the, catal okay. the catalyst behind that was actually receiving good advice. So the longer story is that I had applied for quite a few jobs and I wasn't really getting anywhere, citing things like lacking commercial acumen, lacking, you know, a diverse experience portfolio. So you were getting knocked back getting and knocked getting back. this feedback. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and I really wanted to, you know, continue my career journey and I just didn't understand how I was going to achieve that. So at the time, Qantas is um, head of business and government sales. I, I won't name names, but at the time, quite a long time ago, he gave me the, the advice going, you know, have you, do you understand how Qantas makes money? And I'm like, oh yeah, they sell tickets. He go, yeah, that's a small part of it. But and I realized I just know how Qantas spends money. <laughs> you know how they spend it on maintenance. I know they spend yeah. it on fuel. I know they spend it on, oh, on air, airport charges, landing yeah. fees, but and I realized I, I, I don't. So he's like, well, you know, I, I like you as a, as, as a person, but I, I, I can't use you in my team. And I, and I realized that, you know, it was honest, brutal advice, but he's like, you need to go out there and if you want to stay with Qantas, you need to understand like there's a loyalty business here. There's a, there's sales, there's revenue management, there's strategy. Like these are, you might feel like the center of the world when you're in operations, but there's a whole big machine going on here to make this a successful company at the time. <laughs> and I guess a lot of that and was that, invisible to you in that role, right? Because you're saying, absolutely, yeah. you see how they spend money and airlines have to spend a lot of oh, money. Yeah, <laughs> right? Very small margins as well. Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying that on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. Um, but obviously that money needs to come from somewhere. Exactly. Um, and the logical thing is go ticket sales. People are buying those. People are going on flights, right? Because that's what you see. Yes. When this uh, this guy, um, let's call him your mentor, you call him John, does. that's his actual name. John. Yeah. <laughs> so John came over with this kind of um, yeah. very honest, but super valuable advice, I guess, yes. on reflection. A lot of those business units that he mentioned and those kind of revenue streams, were they kind of invisible to you? Because Absolutely invisible. To those? Yeah. 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 And um, I'm not sure if this, this is something that kind of happens to you when you're in operations, especially working shift work, you know, throughout the night, you really start to get the sense that you're the center of the universe <laughs> of, of this company. Yeah. You know, without you, like how everything would this- Everything would grind to a halt. Yeah, everything would grind to a halt. Yeah. But really, yeah, you really don't get exposed to that. That the rest of the, the, the corners, I guess the corporation side, the business side, that really is- um, enabling there to continue to be in operations Got right? it. really yeah in, yeah in that sense and it's funny right because like i hear similar sentiments from people who work in data teams yeah. uh, at the moment because some of the feedback that we've had when we go in and, and do certain engagements around um question why people are doing certain uh, pieces of analysis and if it's actually moving the dial forwards or not yeah. we interviewed a ceo for a major financial institution who will be unnamed <laughs> okay sure. um that person's view was there's lots of good analysis going on across the organization and people bring it to me. Then their question is, well, what can I do with this? So I can't, what? I can't, so what? Absolutely. Like, what is the why behind this? And if you ask those people, you know, like, how are we minimizing risk? How are we adding value to this? Yeah. Before they undertake a six-month piece of work or whatever it is to do the analysis, then I think, you know, companies would be in a far better position and much more efficient. And 
for, for me and what I see is that there's a lot of analysis that goes on, a lot of good work, a lot of good models being built, but to get those models from a theory or a hypothesis into an operational kind of production environment, yeah. it's few and far between, it, frustratingly so as well. Absolutely, it is. So, and you probably see that, I mean, a lot more than me because day to day you're in that data science field, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, before you start any major piece of analysis or, or work or data model or anything you want to do, and I'm not talking about this when you're during your passion phase while you're mm. learning, that's just do anything. It's completely it, right? different, right? But I when mean, you're, but when you're, and, and again, this doesn't really apply to you. People like uh, university researchers who have been given specific grants to research specific things. I mean, there's a whole fascinating field, which we just discussed. I lectured uh, university students before. But coming back to, you know, business, right? You, you, you've got to do one of three things. Are you maximizing revenue? Are you minimizing costs? Are you minimizing risk? You know, you, as you said, you need yeah. to move the dial on those three things. Or, or you've got those three levers. Which ones do you want to push and but, pull, right? Exactly, and right. And the, you know, when you when you pull one lever, the other one automatically goes up. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you increase your risk. You might increase your cost or insurance, yeah. but um, you have the opportunity to gain more revenue. So you really have to understand the balance between that. And if you're not, if that's not your I guess guiding principle, make sure you have a guiding principle. I think uh, every yeah. time you start, which I believe you, uh, your company is very good at um, helping companies ensuring that they doing valuable analysis and yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's got to be about adding business value, right? But just exactly. going back to that great piece of advice that you had, it all leads to, you know, what is the why? Yeah, what, what is the why? Why are you getting up every day? Why are you doing this analysis, you know, <laughs> and, and really think about that. So coming back then to the the college students and the, yes. and the kind of talks you've been doing, how did that come about? What was the kind of premise of that? And, and, and let, um, let's hear a little bit about that. So I actually... It's kind of through a personal connection, but uh, my brother married a, a, a PhD student who's a researcher, oh, okay. yeah, who's a, <laughs> a researcher at the University of New South Wales in in the biodiversity. I think she's studying um, Antarctica, and like, oh, wow. and like it's, okay. it's it's a fascinating field yeah, of study. But um, her department uh, takes I mean, sometimes high school children to come into university to get a flavour for what it's like to be uh -huh. in in the data science, the research field, and what those lectures they discovered lack. They've been doing them for years, but what those lectures in days and lack is industry. So they have a dime a dozen uh, university researchers. They don't have anybody coming and telling them like, oh, this is how we make money. This is how we look at the balances between operational efficiency, uh, costs, uh, revenue, profit. Like They don't have any of that stuff because researchers don't uh, generally do this analysis for a profit margin. The feedback from the students was that this was one of the most valuable sessions they had. So they got to understand some nuances of how business works, how they can apply these skills to make lots of money for mm. them in the future potentially, or make a, a business a lot of uh, money, enjoy a career success outside of academia. Kind of comes back to those principles and values. Absolutely, again, right? absolutely. We yeah. So they, they, they had a lot of fun time asking me if I got a lot of uh, free burritos and free flats and everything else. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, you know, you had a baptism of fire, if you like, you know, going into the sea level suite and stuff. Yes. And, and <laughs> was, yeah. it's always, it's always challenging. Is there a challenge that you're able to share with us just generally in terms of what, what environments or what situations have been the most challenging for you in one of your kind of senior roles? What approach that you took? And if, if that happened to fail, which <laughs> invariably early on it does, what have you kind of learned from, from that situation and how have you kind of adapted your approaches? You've kind of learned and grown in your career. I think you touched upon it yourself already about the whole, well, great analysis, but so what? kind of concept. So I thought I was doing this amazing piece of analysis about, you know, how 
this new product that GYG at the time was these three dollar tacos and how it's impacting sales and how it's bringing new customers on and um, how what's, what's the best strategy how we should deploy them and then I think I made a big mistake in my presentation by suggesting something like oh and then well if this has worked and this has worked well then I suggest something in the middle might also target a new segment of the market what I learned from that was, first of all, the chief marketing officer and the, and the, the team was just like, you know what, this is, uh, I already know this, like you're wasting, you're wasting my time, so what, what can I do with it? <laughs> and then the, and I don't think that the rest of the C-suite responded well to someone relatively new suggesting how they should oh, yeah, right, do yeah. something. So It often doesn't go <laughs> no, too. No, so I won't get into the detail, yeah. any, any commercially sensitive information, but what I, I guess the biggest thing I took away from it was that sometimes when you're taking people on a, on a journey, you don't need to give them the, the conclusion and going, this is what they should do. You need to take them through a sort of three stages of the, the data story journey, I guess, yeah. is, you know, the, the, the setup. The conflict and resolution like and that's really it like if you can remember keep it simple if you can remember those three things <laughs> yeah and you know like you can think back to like the three little pigs or you know the red riding hood <laughs> any story yeah, yeah. that's ever existed the, yeah. for, for children that's how you have to set up when you're presenting to the c-suite right this is the lay of the land this is the setup here's the conflict you know this is where we have margins are decreasing or you know this is the market segment that we're not targeting or this is how company x is beating us in market share that's the conflict these are our opportunities. This is the resolution is how it could look like, and then you let them use that to come to a decision on what they should do. <laughs> don't don't be don't make because they, they their job is actually to make a decision. Yeah. Don't be the person that makes a decision for them. I guess or that's tell them what to yeah, do. And that was a, I did that. And I got shut down humiliatingly. Going, you know, just, I already know. Like in in front of all the C suite, I already know this. You're telling me nothing <laughs> new. Like this is a waste of my time. Like something along those yeah. lines. It was just shocking. So, yeah. But I did have to have the humility to accept that and learn from it. That's great. And, and, and I guess, you know, that the way that you position the structure of that storytelling framework in three kind of simple parts, yeah. it almost makes it sound so basic that anybody can do it. But it, anybody can. In practice, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very unique skill, certainly for technical people who've got a technical background and are used to kind of coding away and talking to a computer most of the time That's rather right. than, a, a, you know, C-level execs well, who have a different hat on. It's a very rare and unique skill. Well, actually, I want to go back to a very uh, old question, which I didn't finish answering was that what are the top three skills you're looking for? And I mentioned curiosity, but the second most valuable skill is communication, right? So being able to tell the story, yeah. being able to talk to people. Um, at the right level. Uh, talk to people at the right level, at the right level of uh, technical detail to and speak to your audience. Know who your audience is. You know, if you're talking to the C-suite, you know, you have to have this quite relatively simple message, you know, easy to read slides, just the one piece of information on there. But with a C-suite, make sure you've got 50 pages ready to get of analysis ready yeah. for them. Yeah. And they may never ask for it. You might have spent 10 hours putting those together. <laughs> yeah. They may never ask for it. But At least if you're they do, you've done the job, yeah. exactly. But if you do, you better, better yeah. be prepared for it. Yeah. Whereas for, you know, if you're, if you're presenting to other uh, technical people, you can have more technical language, you can have more charts, more numbers. Know your audience. Be able to communicate effectively to, to your audience. Yeah, great point. And, and I guess let's just round out those three skills. And so the curiosity, the communication, and what would you say the third one is that you look for in, in others? some sort of um, data skill put into practice, you know, they, and, it, and I'm not talking about data science here. I'm not talking about the university degree. I'm not talking but about- But a, a discipline of- Some sort of discipline or some sort of demonstration of, look, this is, uh, I, I'm not a computer scientist, but this is what I've done to use data in my life. So it's just real life examples of uh, people taking that initiative that, uh, especially if it's self-driven, 
I, I can't, I can't quite appreciate that people taking it on on board to help their team help resolve a problem on their own it's been great peter to hear about like the history the mentorship everything that's made you or brought you to the point in your career today within this new role looking at today and kind of the the future and i appreciate it's early days in your current role but what kind of are the biggest challenges and opportunities that you see just in the industry, in the data science analytics industry from now for the next few years? What is your perception around it? Where is it going? Is it going to be easier to kind of generate insights, tangible insights, and do something about them in the business? <laughs> yeah. Or is this still going to be this kind of um, friction between trying to understand how this great piece of analysis we've done, how to get it? into something that's going to add business value oh look there's there's a lot of friction i still see what well, like an example of the big friction that i'm pretty sure you, you'd be well aware of is things like machine learning and ai in business everyone's talking about it everyone thinks it's sexy everyone wants to <laughs> wants to have a play and have it and no one is making money with it they're all spending big money on tech firms going hey look we offer this ai machine learning product and they trial it and they're like oh, actually it's not doing any better than what i'm already doing i i don't know how to you know, I don't know how to bring it into my company and make money with it. So, if someone solves that, you know, please find me on LinkedIn and let me know how you <laughs> how you how you're doing that. But uh, it's the thing businesses are struggling to bring in that that machine learning. It's it's super valuable. Like we we can all see it, it can learn things. It can understand and see information that humans might miss because it can do it a lot faster and it can train itself. How can we use it to? Make money. Yeah. And um, have you looked at Chat GPT yet? Have you had a go have. with that? That's blown my mind. <laughs> but I don't know how that's going to help me get that. That's a phenomenal product. I mean, I, I've been playing with it just this week. And yeah, I think everybody has. Yeah. I, I just cannot believe how scary the, the responses are. It sounds exactly like a human reply. Yeah. And I guess the challenge for businesses is that kind of thing exists. It's out there. Everybody can see it and play with that scale. But then how can you take that? I actually think that's a little easier to employ into business because that could be, if used well, it could be used to help with customer support, for instance. I mean, they they might have a ticket. They go, oh, look, this is this is my order number. You know, it hasn't arrived. Can you help me understand it? Like, it, like I think it can be quite in, maybe used as a glorified <laughs> chatbot. Let's yeah, say. Yeah. I think what's what's hard is to how to use those machine learning in, insights to you know turn to, to turn one of these <laughs> yeah. turn one of these dials like. Revenue cost risk reduction. It, it might, you know, and that might be coming, right? That might be the the infancy yeah. of it that we're looking at today. Sure. Yeah. But you, you just never know where it's going to go yeah. in this industry. Yeah, so that's fine. But I mean, the the thing is, a lot of opportunities still for companies to invest in all employees, not just their little A and I team and their little data data team in the back corner there, or somewhere somewhere in the finance team. The opportunity, I think, in the industry is for corporations to upskill the entire company in. Mm data literacy and uh, insights literacy and using those tools, being more comfortable with um, reading charts even. Like some people have got a 20, 30 career in finance and have only ever used Microsoft Excel, right? Which <laughs> yeah. is, like, yeah. so there's so much more it's, it's pretty prevalent, right? Yeah, exactly. You can, you can do that. Yeah. You know, there's been lots of great advice so far. And one of the aims of this podcast is trying to help those people who are trying to break into the field of data understand how they could do it from their own perspective. And if you just had to pick one thing out of everything that we've, we've spoken about, and you've got s somebody, a graduate, let's say, who's looking to break into the world of data and analytics into that field, yeah. and because they have that passion and curiosity about it, what would your one piece of advice, if it had to be one thing, what would you kind of say to them if you were able to kind of have a couple of moments with them? 
I tell them that I, mean, I guess it really depends on, on their comfort and skill set already with their data. But if it's purely passion without anything else, but just the passion for it, you know, then I'd say just get into it, start playing with it, start using it. Don't be afraid of it or intimidated by it. There are so many resources out there to turn your passion into practice. And once you can demonstrate that, you know, you can you can convert your passion into a practice and start applying for jobs, start doing what this guy I hired from GYG did. He literally walked down his street to the small businesses, to the to a local hairdresser and said, look, hey, can I, and I'll do it for free, can I do something with your data? You put that on a resume and I'm telling you, you're going to get it. Turn your passion into practice because it won't, it won't feel like, a, if you're truly passionate like I am and many other people, and I'm sure you are, it's not, it's, it's not going to feel like work. It's going to feel like um, you're really teaching yourself something. Yeah. So it's probably not enough to have passion or an idea without any action, right, Peter? I guess Absolutely. You need to have the action. You need yeah. to have the action. You need yeah. to get up off your ass. You need to get knocking on totally. doors, whether that be a hairdresser or wherever yeah, somebody else. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what it is, but you've got to get some application of that passion in the real world. Exactly. Get and that on and we have a data skill shortage in this country. Country. So we want those passionate people to put into practice so they can come work for, for you know, companies like I work for. It'd be wonderful to have these people, especially if they're passionate, have that natural curiosity. It'd be, they make wonderful colleagues, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a great play and a great message to send yeah. to people who, who might be considering or yeah. looking for ways to get into that, yeah, that yeah, data science or data field. Absolutely. Um, listen, Peter, like it's been so good to to talk about your history uh, in terms of you know starting as a flight <laughs> a flight dispatcher uh, you know all the way through in terms of your journey and some of those kind of key tips and tricks that we've picked up. Yep. I really appreciate your time coming in and give us the advice. I wish you all the best in Westpac in your new role <laughs> and all the much. best for the for the year ahead in 2023. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you, Raj Adam. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mastering Data. Hit follow to get future episodes packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review to help others find the podcast.